Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to worship with you this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Shelton Woods. I'm part of the community here, and our pastors have been going through the book of Philippians this summer, and they had a project this week that they worked on together, and they asked if uh, I would speak on these marvelous verses this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn them to Philippians chapter 3, as we will read verses 10 through 14, the verses are also found in your bulletin. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I Press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You might be familiar with the story of Sisyphus. And that's the story of the rogue king of Corinth who got into trouble with the other gods. And so his punishment was that for the rest of history, for eternity, he was going to have to take a large boulder and take it to the top of a hill, starting as soon as the sun comes up till the sun goes down. And every day, about 10 feet from the top of that hill, the rock would slip and it would go all the way down to the bottom and he'd have to go back and do it all again every day for the rest of eternity. I think in the 21st century, that would kind of be like going into an office and you have 12 hours to sit and to input something into the computer or maybe you have a a professor or teacher that makes you write a 25-page paper and you work all day on it, every ounce of your brain's energy on it, and right before it's over, the computer freezes and you lose everything. All the data is gone, and the next morning you have to start all over again for the rest of eternity. does not sound like fun. In 1942, the French-Algerian thinker and philosopher, thinking of Sisyphus, wrote an essay called The Myth of Sisyphus. And he, having rejected God, Albert Camus said, you know, that's pretty much what life is apart from God. It's absolutely futile. And that's okay. We live in a closed universe. This is all that there is. There's nothing beyond this. So He said what you need to do is find a rock that is at least kind of enjoyable to get to the top of the hill knowing that it absolutely means nothing at the end of the day. In essence, we are on the Titanic. It has hit the iceberg. There are no lifeboats. There's no life jackets. And we're all going down. So it really doesn't matter whether we hug or mug. It doesn't matter because that's all that there is. Apart from God, that's the truth. 
And so it's not surprising that we have heard somebody say, we are all looking for something big enough to live for. Why do songs and literature and movies, they all tell us that there is that person out there that is going to make all your dreams come true. I watched Enchanted last night. I don't know if you've seen that film of Enchanted about this wonderful thing of love that's that prince that is out there, that princess that is out there. What one thing would make you happy? What one thing could you say, yeah, if I had that? Isn't it strange? You look, you, you look across the room and you see somebody, you don't know his name or her name, but you are convinced that's the answer right there. What, it, what is it that if you could have this morning, you would say, yep, that's it. That $50 million, that could make me happy for the rest of my life. A, a happy relationship every day, Waking up and they don't have bad breath and they never, you know, I walk on water, they're very happy. That's, that would make me happy. Every thinker that we have studied says that you're wrong. It won't. It's a rock that you think will get you to the top, but eventually it'll come back down. And what we have in these verses this morning is a statement from the writer of more than 50% of the New Testament who claims, I have found something worth living for. I've found something beyond making it to Mount Everest. Beyond anything that I do in life, I have found something worth living for, and it's this. I want to know Christ. Now, one of the dangers that I'm afraid of this morning is if you say, well, Shelton, if all of life is... If, if all of life is about knowing Christ, then, then it, marriage doesn't mean very much. And, and going to a movie and enjoying a movie doesn't mean very much. And enjoying music doesn't mean very much. I mean, if it's all about knowing Christ, then, then I guess all these other things that I love to do, I, I should feel guilty about loving to do them. No, not at all. You'll never find a more renaissance man than the Apostle Paul. He loved literature. He loved to make tents. He loved traveling. He loved going around. But he said, at the end of the day, what gets me out of bed, what sustains me, is I want to know Christ. It's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. These things that God has given you that you really enjoy. 70s music. Whatever it is that you really enjoy. Those are gifts to you from God. But when they become ultimate, at the end of the day, when you get a call from the doctor, when they tell you the diagnosis, when they tell you she's no longer alive, none of those things will be able to sustain you. Paul says, I found something that will. I want to know Christ. Now, Paul had come through the city of Philippi. Philippi was a place of where retired Roman soldiers had gone. And if you were born in Philippi, you had Roman citizenship. And I can imagine Paul coming through Philippi and preaching to a few people. And he said, I want you to give up everything and I want you to follow Jesus Christ. 
Let me tell you from the Old Testament how that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. I want to tell you that there were 500 witnesses that saw him rise from the dead. Let me tell you about this carpenter who was actually the son of God. And so people said, okay, I'll follow Christ. I'll follow this Messiah. And I can imagine them getting this letter from Paul. And somebody's reading it. Not all of them were literate. And coming to this passage, and the verse says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. I think that if I would have been there, I would have said, wait a minute. Stop reading. This guy came here, and I've committed my life to this Nazarene. And Paul says, I want to know him. I thought he knew him. How can this man say that he wants to know Christ when he came and he said that he had encountered Jesus? Well, let's look at that briefly this morning by answering three questions. What does it mean to know Christ? Why did Paul want to know Christ? And what happens when we know Christ? What does Paul mean when he says he wants to know Christ? The most astounding thing that these people would have thought of when they read this verse or the Roman world is that Christ could be known, that God can be known, that he is a person. He's not like the Roman gods of Apollo, Jupiter, or Venus that are out there and you can't have a personal relationship with this. Even more strange, this uh, word here, no, is the same Greek word used in Matthew 1.25 where it says that Joseph did not know Mary until after she had Jesus. That intimacy, that physical intimacy, that's the same word that's used here. And so Paul's not saying, I want to know about Christ. He is saying, I want an intimate relationship with Jesus, where he hears me and I hear him. Another way to understand this is Paul saying, um, it's kind of like writing a description of somebody's face. You can write the description of somebody's face. If I would ask you, could you describe your mother to me? Could you describe your best friend, the person you love? Could you, yeah, you could write a description of their face that would be very different than looking into that face and knowing that face. Paul says that knowing Christ is so deep, the unsearchable riches of Christ, there's so much to know about him that I want to spend my life knowing him. But there's something even more strange than that. What does he want to know about Christ? If he had a conversation, what would he want to know? Paul wrote more than 50% of the New Testament. And he hated Jesus and he hated the followers of Jesus. And he was on his way to Damascus to, to make sure that more Christians would be killed. And in the middle of that, God stops him and God saves him. And after his conversion, he spends about 14 years learning about Jesus and learning from Jesus. And he goes to the disciples. He goes to Peter and he goes to James. And he says, you guys lived with him for three years. Could you tell us, could you tell me about him? 
I can imagine them saying, yeah, hey, Paul, one time there was a lawyer that came to Jesus to try and trick him, and Jesus said, you need to love your neighbor, and, and, and the lawyer said, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus said that a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he heard the story of the Good Samaritan. There were religious leaders that looked down on everybody and they came to Jesus and Jesus said, let me tell you a story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son said, Father, give me my share of the estate. And he tells them the story of the prodigal son. One time he took us on top of a mountain and he opened his mouth and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. One time we went, he went to a wedding and the host was embarrassed because they kind of had run out of wine and, and, and he took this water and he made the best wine that you could ever taste. But when Paul says he wants to know Christ, it's not like I want to know the parables. I want to know the sermon. I want to know about Bethlehem. Look at what he says. I want to know Christ and his resurrection in and and the power of the resurrection. He wants to know the Jesus that conquered death. Sure, the story of the shepherds visiting the baby in Bethlehem, that's great. Jesus' miracles and healings, they're riveting. But the Jesus I want to know is the one that came out of the tomb. Even when he writes about Jesus in his letters, it's always about him coming up from the grave. 500 witnesses saw him. I passed on to you what I first received on the night that he was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it and then he came up from the grave. So there are 27 books in the New Testament. And I would put my money on, I know which book would have been Paul's favorite. He couldn't have chosen his own. But um, what book would have been Paul's favorite in the New Testament canon? That's very easy. His favorite book would be Revelation. Because you know what Revelation is? Revelation is the story of what happened to Jesus after he came out of the tomb, when he went up into heaven. It's the epic narrative, Revelation chapter 5. It's the epic narrative of John being given a vision of what it's like in heaven. And history is seen as a book. And John sees what we have done in history. How we have destroyed our lives. How we have destroyed each other. And there's no hope for us. And so John writes, then I began to cry and cry because no one was found worthy to open the book. Then someone came to me and said, stop crying. Look, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome all God's enemies so he can open the book. Then millions of creatures began singing this new song, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's what Paul wanted to know. That's the Christ Paul wants to know. The one who looks and reigns over all the world. That the British Empire is like one grain of sand. 
that the Ottoman Empire is like one grain of sand. He rules over all. I know what part of C.S. Lewis's book would have been Paul's favorite. If you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, many of you have. The Aslan figure is the figure of Christ, isn't, isn't he? And Aslan is killed by the wicked witch and the minions on the stone of the law. And poor Susan and Lucy, they, they go to look for Aslan after he has been killed and they can't find him. And then they hear this loud voice when they go to the stone to look for Aslan. And they, they turn around and there is Aslan, the king of the beasts, alive. Oh, Aslan, cried the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead, dear Aslan, said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. You, you, you're not a... Asked Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stopped, stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. Do I look like a ghost? The Christ that Paul wants to know, as we see in verse number 10, is the one who conquered everything. Everything that came up against him. He even went up on Calvary. We are told in the New Testament that God is so powerful that he keeps every worm crawling and every whale uh, swimming. That he keeps the galaxies in place. And in many ways, we're told he does this with his arm tied behind his back. It's very easy for him. But we are told there was one time where he had to summon all the power in the orbit of his omnipotence. And that was when he was raised from the dead. Because when he came out of the tomb, what he said is, all of your sins, all of this awfulness in this world, I'm turning it backwards because I have conquered death. And because Christ has done that, he gives meanings to everything. This resurrected Christ can back up every outlandish claim that he made. Have you ever stopped to think of the outlandish claims that this man from Nazareth, this carpenter made? You're tired, you're sleepy this morning. Come to me and I'll give you rest. You don't have peace in your life. This world won't give you peace. I've got peace for you. You're thirsty, I've got water for you. You drink this water, you'll never thirst again. You're hungry, I'm, I'm the living bread. Taste of me and you'll never hunger again. You're wondering whether to keep on living or not? I've got abundant life for you. You're afraid, you're afraid of what's happening in your family. You're afraid of people finding out who you really are. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believed in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there's many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. So that where I am, there you may be also. 
He can back up all of those claims because he rose from the dead. If Paul was a pastor of a church, no offense to our pastors here, I don't know if it would be a cross that would be up there. It would be an empty tomb. It would be a throne. Because Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's what's going to sustain me because I know if he conquered death, he can raise me from the dead. Second, very quickly, why is knowing Christ the overwhelming passion and focus for Paul? The answer is found in verse number 12. Not that I've already obtained all this. He says, I'm still working on it or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I want to know Christ. I want to grab onto Christ because he grabbed onto me. He took hold of me. You read his autobiographies in Galatians and Corinthians. One of the most surprising things to the Apostle Paul is of all the people in the world, the last person Jesus should have come and said, I've got you, is me. I hated him. I was living for myself. (laughs) Paul would have said, this is what happened to me. I was coming to church every Sunday. I thought I was pretty good. I was looking down at everybody else. I knew the Bible really well. In the 21st century, he might have said, I got married and I spent all of my life wondering why my wife and kids couldn't be as good as me. And I would have died satisfied that I was one of humanity's greatest gifts to God and then God came. And he blinded me so that I could see who I really was. What my heart is really like. What I am when nobody's looking. That I'm governed by anger and frustration, pride. I trust my bank accounts. God let me see me for who I am. Then he said, I've got you covered. I'm going to get a hold of you. I'm going to grab onto you. He says, I haven't made it yet. Beginning of verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this but he took hold of me. He that began a good work is not going to finish with me until it's all done. I was trying to think of an image of this. Brad has been talking about images. What is the image you have of what Christ is doing in your life if you're a believer? The image that comes to my mind is that great story of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. You know that story. It's a beautiful man. I've told it to you before. It's a beautiful man. He can't walk by a mirror without looking at himself because he's, he's pretty happy with what he's like. But he's afraid of getting old. You know what happens to us when we're getting old. Gravity takes place when you get old. That's what happens when you get old. And he's such a beautiful man. And and so he makes a deal with the devil. And he says to the devil, you can have my soul. And devil, you can paint my picture, my portrait. And all the bad things that I do won't age me. I will stay very beautiful. But that portrait can start to look what I'm really like on the inside. And that's the deal that is made. 
And if you follow the story, the devil paints this beautiful portrait, but as Oscar, excuse me, as Dorian Gray, as he lives and as he does awful things, seduces women, steals, even murders, that portrait starts to look very, very ugly. And it looks so ugly, he has to take it up into his attic and hide it from everybody. But one day he, he says, well, I've done some good things. I bet that that thing isn't as ugly because I've done a few good things in the last couple of days. I'm going to go up and, and see what that portrait looks like because I've been good for a couple of days. And so he goes up to the attic. He went in quietly, locking the door behind him and took down the painting. A cry of pain and anger broke from him. The thing was still horrible and ugly, even uglier than before. There was no change except in the eyes. There was a look of a liar in the eyes and in the mouth the curved wrinkle of, of a hypocrite. I kind of see, and I think Paul does too, what Christ is doing is he's taking, he's doing the exact opposite as we know Christ, and as we live in Christ, he's taking this ugly, horrible thing that we have made of ourselves, and he's saying, I'm going to put it back to its original beauty. And I can do it because I conquer death, because there's an empty tomb, because I sit at the right hand of my Father, and all my enemies are becoming my footstool. And because there's coming a day when every tongue is going to confess, when every knee is going to bow, and they're going to say that you have all power. And I'm going to do it in your life right now. Paul says, I want to know that Christ. Because he took hold of me. Christianity isn't something that we take up. It's something that takes us up. You can become a Scientologist this morning. You can make yourself a Buddhist. You can go and you can go to different institutions that will help you improve yourself. But a Christian is somebody that God comes to and says, I'm going to open your eyes. I'm going to take hold of you. Finally, third. What I have to do in this journey of knowing Christ, what happens in this journey? Paul says, there's something that's getting in the way of me knowing Jesus. And that is the past. The past. I've got to forget what is behind and I've got to press on to the future. What does he mean by forgetting the past? One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead... I think there's two things that get us into trouble with regard to our past. One of the things is Paul says, I've got to forget, and Brad preached about this last Sunday, I've got to forget about all my past advantages. I thought that I was doing really good. I wonder if there's some people in this room that there was a time that you were El Fuego, you were on fire for God, and you're living on fumes because of the past rather than straining toward finishing the race. But I think what really got into Paul's way 
is when he looked at the past, he was so embarrassed about what he was. I killed Christians. I blasphemed Jesus' name. And if I sat and thought about those things, it would paralyze me. I wouldn't be able to move forward. If that's what I meditated on all the time, my horrible past, my sins, my embarrassment, it would paralyze me. But I forget about those things. You know why I forget about those things? Because Jesus rose from the dead and he has forgiven those sins and I press on toward the high calling. Paul knows who he is writing to and when he talks here at the end, the prize for which God has called me, the language that is used there is that, and these, these Roman citizens would understand this, that when you went to the Olympics and when you won a race, what would happen at the end of the race is that in the arena, the officials would be gathered there and the winner would be summoned to receive the prize. And this is what would happen. The first thing that would happen is the name of the winner would be shouted out. And then the name of the winner's father would be shouted out. And then the name of the winner's country would be shouted out. And Paul says, I want that prize. I want to get to the point where my name is mentioned. And then they say, my father is God and my citizenship is in heaven. That's the country that I am from. So let me close by asking this. What is your life's goal? If it is not supremely to know Jesus Christ, it will not sustain you. You say, Shelton, you haven't told me how I can know Christ. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. If you want to know somebody, you're going to spend time with them. You're going to think about them. If you wanted to know me, who should you talk to to know me? You should talk to my bride. You should talk to Karen. I'm kind of afraid of what she might say. But if you want to know me, you want to talk to the person that's lived with me for 27 years, who I've lived with. You'd want to talk to my bride. And as imperfect as it is, if you want to know Christ, you better know his bride. You better love his bride because he loves it. And who is that bride? We are the bride of Christ. Why do we come to church on Sunday? We're the bride of Christ. We get to see Christ when we see each other. We get to know him. There's nothing greater than spending your life knowing Jesus. He will redeem your sorrows, your guilt, your sin, your alienation from God. He will transform how you see everything in this life. He will make everything that you do meaningful, every race that you run, every movie that you see, whatever it is, he has redeemed it because he has conquered evil rising from the dead and is making all things new. When he comes again, we are told that he, is, he has a tattoo. I don't, know, I don't know if you've heard that Jesus has a tattoo, 
Revelation 19 says when he comes again, he's got a huge tattoo on his thigh. And it says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what Jesus has on his thigh because he has conquered death. Let us pray. Father, we come into your presence and with eyes of faith we see our Savior, that carpenter, sitting at your right hand. With a thigh that reads, King of kings and Lord of lords. We confess that we have run after other things. And at the end of the day, we agree with our brother Paul that we want to know Christ, how he sustains all things, how he redeems all things because of his victory over sin and the grave. Make it so in our lives because we pray through his precious name.